The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. I'm honored to present to you your speaker tonight. Dr. Douglas Mastriano retired as a colonel in the U.S. Army, serving as the Director of Theater Intelligence, Department of Military Strategy, Planning and Operations at the U.S. Army War College. His first duty station after commissioning in 1986 was, the, was on the Iron Curtain with the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. Dr. Mastriano deployed to Iraq for Operation Desert Storm and again in Afghanistan where he commanded soldiers from 18 different nations. In 2014, Dr. Mastriano published his first book, the award-winning Alvin York, a new biography of the hero of the Argonne. We have that for sale out back, in fact. He earned his PhD from the University of New Brunswick and continues to add to the scholarship on the operations of World War I. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me give a warm welcome to Dr. Douglas Mastriano. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Wow. It is great to be here with you guys. Thanks for taking the time to come out. I'd like to thank my wife, Rebecca, and son Josiah for coming out, and so many friends from across the years as well. It's great to see you all. So we're going to go on a wild ride today. What's kind of interesting, though, it's, it's the 2nd of August, right? Wow. What was going on in 1990? I was sitting on the Iron Curtain. It's the, the end of the Cold War. And I was with the British near Helmstead, Germany, and uh, doing our last uh, intercept mission against the, what was left of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviets. And uh, the British had in her skiff and her secure facility a little small TV, and there was Iraqi tanks running through Kuwait City. And I'm like thinking, that's really messed up, but it's so far away, it'll never affect me. A few months later, <laughs> guess who went to, almost all of us from Germany, at least from 7th Corps, got to go and have a fun time in the desert. And it seems like those wars don't end. And uh, a lot of the troubles that we have in this, that part of the world actually goes back to World War I. So this is relevant. Many of the, the wars and battles and crises and situations that we're dealing with go back 100 or more years. So my saying in the epigraph in the book, the book you see in the screen there, Thunder and the Argonne, is, is what you do in life matters. Your life matters, and what you do echoes across the generations and into eternity. And you can see how the legacy of those who 100 years ago came before us left a legacy, in some regards, really well. In other areas, some room for improvement. You know, there, there's always often a conflict uh, between the sciences and the arts, the humanities and scientists, if you have it that way. And because, uh, you know, scientists, observable, oftentimes they have laboratories, but I think us historians have laboratories too, it's called the past. And let's learn from other people's mistakes and not repeat them on our own. So hopefully with this lesson here, we'll be able to take away some vignettes on how to change history, or at least live it better. So Thunder and the Argonne, here we go. April, put on your seatbelts, it's gonna be a wild ride. April 1917, 2nd of April, President Wilson asks Congress to declare war against Germany. And, okay, by the 6th, we're in. Both the House will vote for it two days later, and then the Senate finally, and approve it, and we're at war. But we're at war, and we're not ready. In fact, the U.S. Army War College Commandant had, uh, being a strategic thinker, he's like thinking, it looks like we're going to enter war against Germany. Maybe we should start planning about this, and at least thinking about it, and getting some thoughts on paper. And if we do go to war, how do we mobilize from a colonial frontier army to a massive conventional army, a modern army? And President Wilson was such a peacenik that he goes, you can't, he, he ordered the commandant to stop, because that's warmongering. To prepare for war, you're warmongering, so just put it aside. So we're going to go in cold. And so we're going to go from a 200,000-man army in 1917 to about 4 million in two years. I mean, that's impressive, but what are the quality, what, what's the quality of the soldiers going into the fight? Not very good. We're going to go from chasing banditos on the Mexican border and... Uh, dealing with the insurgents in, in the Moros and in the Philippines and policing part of the empire after the Spanish-American War, you know, Cuba and what have you, to fighting the German army in this massive conflagration on the Western Front. And it's not going to be pretty. And Woodrow Wilson and Secretary of War Baker will not be the ones paying the price for their folly, for the lack of vision, for the lack of strategy, for the lack of preparedness. 
It'll be, it'll be men and women like you and I that will pay for it in, in their blood. And you'll see that here shortly. So you can see my great grandpa on the screen there chasing Pancho Villa in 1916. We never got him. But anyway, so it's, what's the price of unpreparedness? We don't have what it takes to field and equip a modern army. And so we're going to beg, borrow, and steal, mostly get freely from the French everything that's needed to fight this war. And you can see on the slide there what we're needing. We're going to need not one American airplane will, will fly and fight on the Western Front. Yes, yeah, stuff is shipped over, but by the time it gets there, it's too late. So we're going to rely upon mostly France. France is largely going to be the arsenal of democracy in 1917, 1918 for the United States. Almost all the artillery is French. All the tanks that we use are French. There's some British thrown in there. But it's incredible. And a lot of the equipment is, is French or British based. And it's a bad situation. And to make matters worse, there's, there's a contradictory guidance on how we should fight this war. On here, you see from Lieutenant Jones in the 82nd Division, he says, you know, foreign instructors arrive. So British and French soldiers who've been fighting on the Western Front since 1914 are coming to America to get us ready for war because they need us there quickly. It's not looking so good. And so anyway, foreign instructors arrived to show us the only way to win this war. The French swore by the hand grenade and the light machine gun. The, the British swore by the bayonet. And we swore by, well, anyway, we swore and looked, worked a little bit harder. <laughs> that's a tough place to be. And then if that's not bad enough, we had a lot of green men going into combat, and we're getting conflicting messages from the British and the French and from the American leadership on how to fight this war. And I'll talk about the, the issue with the American leadership and how flawed it was is that on top of all this, you have a lot of people fresh off the boat, like some of my ancestors, fresh from Italy, and they can't even speak English. So your duty day starts around 5 o'clock in the morning every day as you're training. You're drafted or volunteered for the Army. Around 5 o'clock, you're up working. You're working until 1900, that's 7 o'clock Air Force time. For any of you guys in blue, Mike, sorry, brother. <laughs> I love you, man. And uh, after that, the officers have to spend the rest of the evening teaching the Italians, the Greeks, the Russians, Lithuanians, Latvians, I mean, the Poles, just the Turks and others, how to speak English so they could understand and obey orders. And this is a rough army to get going here. God help us. There's situations on the Western Front where uh, an American patrol mostly filled with Greeks is out, and they come back, and there's an American, mostly Italian patrol, and they challenge each other, can't understand each other, and literally open fire thinking they're the enemy. I mean, that's a bad boat to be in. So to make matters worse, the conflicting message on the American side is we're going to fight 1914 style in a 1918 war. General Pershing uh, basically says, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but you can read it in his own words, basically, you Europeans got into this mess because you don't know how to fight. Us Americans were naturally aggressive, audacious, and with the bayonet and the rifle, we're going to break through these trenches. The French are... Uh, the French are like, you know what, we tried that in 1914, 1915, 1916, didn't work so well. We advise against that. And Pershing's like, nope, we're going to do it American, the American way. And anyway, in, in frustration, the premier of France, George Clemenceau, says, if the Americans refuse to learn from us, the Germans will teach them. And that's a hard way to learn. And that's why we have so many schools in the Army, including the US Army War College, is so we can get ahead of these problems and no longer throw away lives needlessly. And you'll see how ugly it gets because of our, maybe our pride, our lack of preparedness. So we declare war in April, and by November, seven months later, there's only 100,000 men in France. And the French are like, and the British are like, where are the Americans? That, that's a drop in a bucket for the Western Front. It's like, well, we're coming. We need more time. We sent you half of our standing army already. The rest are staying back to train. The rest of the guys coming. And that's a bad boat to be in. That's my wife, uh, Rebby. Rebby, could you raise your hand? That's her grandfather, Ellis, there. And he's going to see lots of action there in the Western Front. Meanwhile, what's going on in the rest of Europe? 1917 was a bad year. The, the British Army and its colonial and empire elements, of course, are, are wearing down. The quality of the troops is really poor, and they're running out of manpower. To make matters worse, in 1917, the French launched a series of attacks and it resulted in a catastrophe and the French army mutinied. Not a lot of guys went home, actually. It sounds worse than it really was, but most of them were like, we're not attacking those German machine guns anymore. We're just going to sit right here in our trenches. OK, we, you have a problem. The French army is, is on the brink of collapse. And then to make matters even worse, if it couldn't get any worse, the Russians, of course, are out of the war in November because of the Bolsheviks take over the communist revolution. And now we have a million 
German soldiers going to be flung from the Eastern Front in Russia to the Western Front. The Kaiser is not stupid. He sees at times against him. So the plan is, is to move a million Germans from the, West, from the Eastern Front from Russia to, to take the Allies out before the Americans could show up, since the Americans are taking so long. And he might just be able to pull it off if everything goes well. And that shows you how far the German attacks went. There's five attacks in the spring. And there's panic in Paris. There's panic. They, they destroy the British Fifth Army under Van Gogh. I mean, it's a rough go. But of course, just in the nick of time, the Americans are there to help stave off the German attacks. And things start turning against the Germans. <clears throat> and in fact, by July, the Germans had culminated in their ability to conduct large offensive operations and end it. And the Allies, the French and British, including the Americans, who are not really allies or associated powers, they begin local counterattacks. General Foch is the first supreme allied commander in Europe. It wasn't Eisenhower, it was General Foch, Marshal of France. And he was given all the powers needed to lead these armies in April 1918, when it looked like we were going to lose the war on the Western Front. So after four years of lacking unified command, finally we have unified command under the one, one commander with all the authority and power to lead a, lead a multinational force. And he looks at this, and I would say he has what this might cause some controversy out there, but Karl von Clausewitz, a great Prussian thinker, says uh, the best commanders out there would be military geniuses. And he'd say Napoleon was a genius or Frederick uh, the Great was a genius. I believe that Foch was a genius as well. He, he saw something no one else saw. He said uh, he had a meeting in, in July at his headquarters outside of Paris. He brought all the Allied commanders in and said, it's time to take the fight to the Germans. We're not going to wait till 1919 to win this war. 1919 is supposed to be this massive attack with thousands of airplanes, thousands of tanks. It looks a lot like World War II, actually, Plan 1919. But Foch is like, we're not going to give the Germans a chance to recover this winter. We're going to drive them out of this war. And to a man, all the Allied commanders balked at the idea. Uh, General Peyton of France, he's like, no, are you kidding me? We just recovered from these five massive German attacks. Field Marshal Haig of the British. He says the same thing, I just lost Fifth Army, I need time to recover. Even General Pershing's like, no, I need more time because my army's not ready yet. And so Gen General uh, Marshal Foch is very shrewd. He he's, Eisenhower, I think, models his leadership much off of Foch. That sounds like a good book for one of you guys out there. And anyway, he doesn't impose his will on the Allied and Associated Power Commanders. He, gives them, he has a copy of, of his plan and gives it to take it back to your staffs and let's talk about it tomorrow. And they take the plan back, like, well, this is a great plan. And the next day, he wins them all over. So the plan that's going to include the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, the thinking for it actually began in July. So that's all the factors. And here is the plan. General Foch uh, lays out the concept of operations as a broad front attack across the entire Western Front. And you can see on the map there, that the, on the lower part of the map, hopefully everyone can see this on both sides, you have Verdun down here, and it's a launching attack with the Americans west of Verdun and the French, and then, of course, the rest of the Allies, a broad front attack. Does it sound a little bit like 1944, 1945? I'm telling you, I'm, I, I, I'm convinced that General Eisenhower, he knew his history because he walked these battlefields. He mapped it out for us. The American Battlefield Guide actually was written by him. Anyway, broad front attack to overwhelm the Germans. The biggest problem that we have on the Western Front, and the reason why we couldn't break out, wasn't for lack of trying, of we being the Allies the previous four years, was the Germans had more than 20 reserve divisions in the back behind the line. And there was railroad networks constructed by the Germans to rush those reinforcements to anywhere there was a, an attack or breakthrough. And we were stuck in a cycle over and over again. The Allies, the French or British would attack, the Germans would bring up divisions and, just, and force us back, and it was just an unending cycle. So General Foch's vision, the Supreme Allied Commander, is I'm going to fling the Americans, the most aggressive force, the greenest force I have, against the most vulnerable sector of the German line, but also the hardest to get through, the Meuse-Argonne region. And that will draw off the German reserves and open a way for the French and British to break through further north. That was his vision, and that's what happened. Absolutely brilliant. So it's, it's an allied victory. No one nation pulled this off. It was a joint effort. Sorry, I had some tacos before. There's the, there's the four attacks. First with the Americans, number one. And then General Field Marshal Haig's with the British Expeditionary Force up north. Then the, the Belgians with British and French support. And then, of course, the big French attack in number four. So broad front attack, 
draw off all the German uh, forces. In, in effect, it's, it's sort of like an in echelon attack, sort of. It's really not sequential as Frederick the Great would do it. But it's designed to overwhelm the enemy and cause a breakthrough somewhere, and that's exactly what happens. And the war, after 47 days of attacks, that's where it's going to end. On 11 November, that's going to be the, the finish line right there. Not bad in 47 days. So let's get on to the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. <clears throat> you know, a lot of times you think about World War I, we're stuck in the idea of trenches. You watch any movie, even, even but you can't guess my favorite movie. Sergeant York. <laughs> even my favorite movie, Sergeant York, is flawed in that it shows you his battlefield, and it's all trenches and what have you. It's like, no, we'd broken out from that weeks before. So there's, there's periods where trenches were dominant, but not, not throughout the whole war. And also, this whole idea of, of tanks as well. Those are some French Renault tanks. There's one in a museum here, good-looking piece of equipment. And it's not bad, but combined arms warfare and using not just infantry, but also artillery and, and aviation and armor forces to break through really played a difference. And that was, they were all over the battlefield, except in the Argonne, which was too dense for them to operate. So the plan is, here's just in the, the Meuse-Argonne sector. Now, it's called Meuse-Argonne for two reasons. The, you got the Meuse River that flows out of Verdun just off the map. And of course, you got the Argonne Forest. So it includes, for the Americans and French, all the Argonne, this is the American sector, all the Argonne, the Meuse Valley, all the way over to the Meuse River. The attack is going to kick off on 26 September with 600,000 600, Americans and a lot of French tanks, a lot of French aircraft, and also about a core worth of uh, French soldiers will be involved. In the end, this will be one of our largest campaigns in American history, and it's too bad it's forgotten. 1.2 million Americans will fight in the Meuse-Argonne when it's all said and done. 600,000 French, so almost 2 million French and American soldiers fight side by side here, facing a determined foe. And it's one of our bloodiest epics as well. About 20,000 casualties a week at some point. Can you imagine that today? A week. It's just incredible. And it didn't need to be so bad. But the enemy gets a vote. And there's three things we're facing here from an American and French perspective, attacking from the southern part of the German bulge to the north is it's the most narrow point on the German line. You can see the depth on the slide here. To get behind the German defenses is only 18 kilometers in the Argonne sector. It's very narrow. And if you get beyond that last ring, it's, it's open roads. There's no one to stop you. You can see further north what the British and French are facing as far as Laon, for instance, it's 60 kilometers deep. So in these sectors, you'll see the Germans go up land for time. We, the Germans can't do that in the Argonne region. So they have to fight for every foot of ground. They've owned this territory for four years, so they know where the target artillery, and it's not safe to move day or night, because the Germans will blast you. This gives you a good view. So the Argonne Forest, this dense forest that's been there since Noah's days, it has never been used. There's been never, never any major battles there until 1914. And then, of course, the Meuse Valley. The terrain favors the defense. So the enemies we're facing here, not just the Germans, but also the weather. The weather is terrible this time of year, at least especially in 1918. It's constantly raining. Almost every day of the 46-day attack, it's raining. This is the problem for the soldiers on the attack. It favors the defense. And then, of course, the terrain. The hilly terrain, it's undulating terrain with, with hills that go normally east to west. And we're attacking from the south, so that means the Germans can defend every ridge line. It's not going to be easy. And General Pershing, the American Expeditionary Forces commander, he knew it was not going to be easy, but he volunteered for this. We didn't get duped by the French. Pershing's like, put me where I can make the biggest difference. And Foch is like, okay, right here. And Pershing's like, yes, we can do this. <clears throat> so the problem is if you're attacking up the Meuse Valley, to the western side of the valley, you have the Argonne. And the Germans have observers, and they have uh, nests, uh, artillery observer points, with the ladders going to the top of trees, they'll see everything moving across that entire valley. I kid you not. To make matters worse, on the east, east side of the Meuse River, there's also high ground, the Meuse Heights. And the Americans will fail to plan to take those, that high ground across the river. And the sad thing, this is, this is what happens when you don't study history. In 1916, the Germans launched the Battle of Verdun. Same region right here. The Germans focused on the eastern side of the river and ignored the high ground on the opposite side of the bank. And they were devastated by the French artillery and the French gunners on the other side, so they had to launch a separate attack some weeks later to, to, to reduce that. We're going to end up doing the same thing. But once again, it's, it's, 
that could have been avoided had anyone been there to study 1916 or talk to the French, tell us about the Battle of Verdun. They're like, you have to control the high ground on both sides of the river. You can't ignore one. And anyway, we ignore it, and we pay a high price for it. There's two rivers crossing the area. The Meuse River is on the eastern side, very wide with the heavy rains. It's going to be flooded. It's not very deep, but it's, just, it's a huge obstacle. And then, a, and then a smaller river called the Air River along the Argonne Forest on the western side of the slope. And that's, a, that's an obstacle as well. And, but okay, that's all interesting. And then the Germans have several bands of defenses, and we have to fight through those. It's not continuous. On the front line, it's continuous, but behind that, it's, it's strong points, four to five strong points. And it's not going to be easy to fight through them. How is General Pershing going to overcome this? He believes that Americans are natural hard fighters, or natural fighters, and with surprise, audacity, and overwhelming force, we're going to win the day in the Argonne. But the Germans had faced this before and stopped it, so let's see how it goes. <clears throat> uh, this, this is not how General Pershing planned it. Pershing planned on when the attack kicked off on 26 September, we were going to break through and no one's going to stop us. Actually, in reality, we'll have a couple days of success. We'll spend almost the entire month of October slugging it out with the Germans, everything General Pershing hoped wouldn't happen. And then finally, we'll have our, our big breakout on 1 November. So that's how it's going to shake out in reality. Now, what's interesting was so much was hinged upon surprise. And as far as surprising the Germans in the region, it worked brilliantly. Because just a week and a half before the American attack, most of the American army and all its good units were actually 100 kilometers to the east on the other side of Verdun, reducing the San Mihal salient. And that was a huge success. And the Germans are thinking it's a great American success here, east of Verdun, they're going to continue on towards the city of Metz. And while they're making preparations to defend 100 kilometers away, the Americans are moving rapidly with, with French transport to the Argonne. And we managed, we managed to pull off surprise. And you can read here the accounts from one of the German units, 125th Württemberg Landwehr Regiment out of Stuttgart, Germany. This is a, it's a fun read in their, in their book. Initially, so they're curious of what's going on in front of them. They're sending out reports, and they're getting strange messages from their, uh, from their listening posts forward along the line with the French. At first, a report comes back in early September from the uh, German Army Intelligence Center is uh, there's going to be no American attack in the Argonne. It's going to be a quiet sector, as it had been for the previous year. And then on 11th September, some German forward observers are, are, are in the line listening to the enemy, and they hear Italian. Now, there had been Italian units stationed there in 1915, but actually, these aren't Italians from Italy. Well, you know what I mean. These are Americans, mostly off the boat, like Mike Mara's ancestors and mine as well, and they're in there chattering to each other in their native tongue, and the Germans are like, oh, the Italians are back. That's strange. <laughs> and then the next day, the intel people say, well, the Italians are there, but now they're speaking French because someone heard French also, and they're trying to deceive us by, by using French in the front line. Okay, this, this is getting silly here. On the 21st, you see another bad, uh, another bad reference. Now the French are there, it's not Italians. And then finally, after half a million plus Americans are in the sector, a German aviator breaks through the French air screen. The French put up hundreds of aircraft to keep the Germans from doing air reconnaissance. And uh, in the German history, they say this brave and daunting Pilot broke through the enemy line, this German, and uh, saw mountains of material and millions of men. It's like very exaggerated. And they wrote back to headquarters, we're in trouble, and <laughs> sent help quickly. So we have an opportunity. It's too late for the help to come right away, but we have an opportunity. And while that's all going on, you can see what's building up in front of them. 100,000 French, 600,000 Americans, lots of aircraft, lots of artillery, and lots of tanks. So we'll achieve our initial surprise. Did that wake you up or what? Woke me up. I meant to delete the sounds out of this. <laughs> oh well, sorry about that. The attack kicks off on 26 September, and it's a fierce artillery barrage. You're right over there, Bob. <laughs> it's a fierce artillery barrage. One of the gunners manning a, a battery is this guy called Harry S. Truman. Anyone recognize that name? <laughs> Young Captain Truman with thick old glasses he got in there to, to fight the good fight. It always does your heart good when you have some kind of political guy, you know, actually stepping aside and doing his duty instead of just legislating from their capitals, wherever they are. We, we do smash through the German lines initially, and it goes quite well for us, and I'll give you some vignettes on that. But it comes at a high price, even though we have the advantage on surprise. 
Okay, I was waiting for another explosion sound there. We're good. So the blue line is, is what General Pershing had planned for. The black line is actually what we achieved. That's not that bad, actually. And in fact, one of the, uh, the, the French army commander, Peyton, looks like Petan, Peyton, he, he believed it would take us some, some weeks to get that far, he said before the battle. So this is quite impressive. It's like, wow, the Americans, they're not as bad as we thought they'd be. But some vignettes on the initial attack. Defending the hill in the middle of the, of the Meuse Valley, slightly off to the, to the west of the center, there's this, front, this hill called Vaquois. And for four years, the French and Germans had been fighting over this hill. Neither side can get to take the summit. It's split. So the French and Germans start digging tunnels underneath each other and la launching subterranean warfare. And 504 uh, mines are blown up underneath each other's lines. The center of the hill completely dis disintegrates. I think about 8,000 soldiers are mis missing in action, just, just, just uh, disintegrated from all these actions back and forth. But there's 17 kilometers of tunnels underneath this hill, and you can go through with a French guide if you want to spend so much time under the ground. But one of the units defending this hill is the Kaiser's own, the Emperor's bodyguard, the Second Foot Regiment. And their last message before the Americans uh, reduced them was, uh, we're surrounded on, we're being attacked from all sides by large masses of Americans. We will fight to the last man. Long live the king. And the Americans swarm across Vaqua. They're yelling down in German for the Germans to surrender, and the Germans will come out, so grenades start getting tossed in there. And so most of the guards' regiment will be eliminated. And then, of course, George Smith Patton is running around on the battlefield. He's commanding what we call about a brigade of tanks on the battlefield, supporting the 35th Division on the lower slopes on the west side of, of the Meuse Valley. But he's on foot. He's not in the tank. He's the commander. And he's in headquarters, impatiently waiting for reports from his tanks. He's getting none. So he goes out on foot with his staff. And the staff follow him out there. And things don't go so well. They encounter a bunch of tanks hung up on trenches, because we'll this is where we're going to break out of the trenches. And uh, there's French and American crew tanks out there, and he's yelling at them to get out of the tanks and dig them out and under, under machine gun fire. And then he's leading large groups, large masses of men from the 35th Division who, who uh, lost their op the officers out front and the first killed. And so this order breaks out in these green divisions like the 35th from Kansas, Missouri. And uh, Patton's leading about 150 men across the battlefield until they He's confronted by machine guns all around him. The most of the men retreat. He's stuck in there with his, uh, with his aide, Private D'Angelo, an Italian immigrant. And uh, in the end, Patton's going to guide the tanks forward, but not until a bullet passes through his butt. So anyway, he says, I thought I was going to die that day on the Aragon. And Private D'Angelo is going to be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for, for pulling the boss out of there and dragging him away to safety. And he's going to go on to do great things, of course, in the next war against the Germans. <laughs> Okay, what goes on in the Argonne is the Germans launch a series of uh, attacks. The Americans, if you read their histories, the divisions attacking the Argonne, Forest proper, is a 77th division, largely out of New York, mostly New York City. And then, of course, the 28th, our boys here from Pennsylvania. And they claim they made all kinds of ground in the Argonne, but that's just the dead space the Germans had in, in, in the mobile defense. And so once they hit the German line, they're stopped. And it's not good because the Germans launched ser a series of counterattacks that drive the Americans back, actually. So it's not as good as you, you might read in the books. The forest is a problem. But then in the center of the, of the uh, just a couple kilometers off to the east of Aqua, there's this giant hill called Mont Falcon, Falcon Hill. General Pershing said we have to take that hill in the first day because it commands everything in the region. And it's, we can't get it in the first day, mostly because the mission was assigned to the greenest division in the army in France at the time, the 79th, largely out of Baltimore. And they have trouble taking that hill. The Germans are going to defend it, and it takes two days instead of one. That's still not bad, though. General Peyton thought it would take the Americans until Christmas to take that hill, so okay. But it's a heck of a price to pay. I'm almost afraid to click this thing anymore. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so here's uh, General Pershing's counterpart. His name is General von Galwitz, a great German officer, an artilleryman. He's been, on, he's been uh, fighting almost everywhere in Europe, down in the Balkans, you know, that's going to turn into Yugoslavia after the war, on the Eastern Front, across the Western Front. He's a very good, successful commander. And uh, he sees a crisis. He missed it, just like his intel people fed him the information that was wrong. He was looking towards Metz, and it took him a few days to realize this was really the, the focus of the American attack. 
And so he issues orders once he realizes this, this is the, the real deal. We got to defend every inch of ground. And the German troops in the Meuse-Argonne know this. It's just too shallow to give up any terrain for maneuver. And so it's uh, the German, German Imperial Army is a bit odd because you have an emperor, Emperor Wilhelm, you know, Kaiser Willie, they used to call him, his slang. So he's the king of Prussia, but also he's the emperor of Germany. And then you have, this is left over some medieval Holy Roman Empire days. You have a Württemberg king, a Bavarian king, and also a, the Prussian king I mentioned, and also king of Saxony. So you have mixed forces there. And most of these forces will be deployed to fight the Americans, and they will do quite well, actually, especially the Württembergers defending the Argonne Forest. The Württembergers have been in the Argonne often on most of the war, and they, said, they describe it as a second home for themselves, so they know the ground very well, and they're going to use that advantage. So this, this is a great story here, and this should give all of us hope. <clears throat> God forbid maybe some of you are raised by parents or worked for somebody in a business that said, you know what, you'll never amount to anything. You just don't believe the lies. Don't let that hold you. And of course, you'll hear the whispers that you're trying to achieve something and encountering resistance. And uh, you'll, you'll be reminded of something maybe a mom or dad or, or a friend or somebody spoke over you that that was bad. Don't believe it. And here's one of these cases. We have uh, Major James Rieger from Kirksville, Missouri. The war breaks out. Uh, he signs up. He's an attorney. And uh, he's trying to be the best leader he can be. And he's troubled because uh, they train in Texas. And the only diversion for the soldiers on weekends is to go downtown, and get drunk, and chase the girls. And so Major Rieger, being a Christian man, he starts a Sunday school program. And it's very popular. He gets three, 400 soldiers attending. Unfortunately, though, his boss, General Barry, thinks that he thinks Christianity makes men weak. And so he tries to fire James Rieger for for doing all this and trying to live out his faith. And obviously, the army says, you can't fire him for these reasons. Anyway, he, General Barry, out of frustration when he can't fire him, says, you know what, Rieger? You're hopelessly useless. You'll never amount to anything in this army. You're a loser, put it in modern terms. Anyway, so the Battle of the Argonne kicks off. The first American across that hill, the Croix, that the French and Germans couldn't take in four years of fighting, the first American across that hill is Rieger. He leads his battalion across that hill and liberates it. That is fantastic. If that doesn't convince you of, the, of what the hopelessly useless people like you and me can do in life, let's tell the rest of the story. He goes on to liberate the two French villages, Charpentry and Exermont. And uh, the French are so impressed, it's, it's not just walking through. You're under German fire. You're maneuvering, trying to get your troops through the fires here. And anyway, the French are so impressed by this that the French uh, call him the hero of the Argonne. Somebody hopelessly useless. What's even more interesting about the story, though, so what happened to General Barry? He's going to become the division artillery commander for the 35th Division, of which, of course, Rieger's part of. And he's going to be relieved for cause and incompetence during this fight, because he's firing on his own troops. So anyway, there is justice sometimes in his life. That's fantastic. What's interesting for me is that there's an account of this one German officer who's captured. And he says something I think really encapsulates. The Americans are, losing, are, are learning fast. We have a false doctrine, the spirit of the bayonet kind of thing. You know, bayonet and the American fighting will, will will break the German line. And anyway, we're adapting quick. It's mostly because all the units had French officers and NCOs assigned to them. And while the, the, the soldiers and junior officers are like, we, we don't want to lose men and do the stupid, you know, hey, diddle, diddle, everyone up the middle kind of attack. How do we beat the Germans? And so the, the French veterans are there whispering in the ears how to do this. And we're adapting really quickly. It's, it's amazing how fast that, that these units learn and on their own. But this one German officer captured early in the fight says, you know what? When you Americans attack me just with infantry, we win, we win all the time. If you attack me with infantry and artillery, we win about half the time. But when you attack me with infantry, artillery, and tanks, we lose all the time. And that's what's happening. It's shaping up in the Meuse Valley, not in the Argonne, because the tanks can't operate in there. It's just too dense. But in the valley, combined arms fighting is coming to fruition. And then throw in on top of that the US Air Service. That's going to go on to be the Air Force later on. And we're unstoppable. <clears throat> so that was all the initial attack. And now we're going to be in the meat grinder phase for most of October. And this is all the things that Pershing hoped would not happen are happening. We're, we're, we're slugging it out, attrition warfare. It's ugly, it's slow. Progress is grinding to a halt, and there's a lot of problems. The bright side is that some of our best units are, are back from San Mihel, and they're going to be thrown into the line to fight, but it's not going to be easy. They would better use earlier on in the fight, obviously, but 
they, they will hold the line for us for the next month. And you can see our advance from 3, three to 31st October, not very far. We're talking about 5 to 10 kilometers in a month. That, that's terrible, especially when you're considering by, by this point we're about 800,000 men in the line. That's not a lot of ground for so many troops squished in there. I mean, it's just wall-to-wall -wall troops in some areas. But success is hinged upon the action of, of ordinary people like you and me. They're going to be caught in impossible odds facing a determined enemy, and these men will rise to the occasion and change history. The transition from slugging it out with the Germans to a breakthrough on 31 October really begins on the 2nd of October with the saga of the Lost Battalion. The French and Americans launch a combined attack across the Argonne and then west of the Argonne Forest on the 2nd of October. All the, all the units are repulsed except about 694 Americans break through the German lines and they advance about a kilometer behind the Germans, achieve the objective, a road by the Charlevoix Mill, and dig in. And they ran a, a telephone wire back to headquarters and headquarters, General Alexander, commander of the 77th Division, is like, yeah, you have, you advance, go, go, you're good, your flanks are good, they're, they're not good. It's, there's nobody there except Germans. It's not looking good. We'll save that one for later. <laughs> Five days surrounded by the Germans. Every day the Germans are launching attacks, trying to reduce the pocket. They realize that they could destroy this lost battalion, it's going to be called. The Germans call it the Americaner Nest, Nest of Americans. If they can destroy that, it'll be a psychological blow to the United States Army, the Army, American Expeditionary Forces. And so it's unrelenting. To make matters worse, General Alexander, he thinks he knows where they are, so he launches artillery support to protect them from frontal German attacks. But unfortunately, the artillery falls short, killing or wounding 89 of the 694 Americans. This is not good. To make matters worse, just before that barrage began, the Germans found a telephone wire that could only link to headquarters and cut it. So how do you let them, how does Major Whittlesley, the, the gentleman you see on the screen, the senior officer of this lost battalion, it's actually elements of two, two, two battalions, how do you tell headquarters? Well, he's, he has two courier pigeons left, and the guy carrying the birds, his name is Private Omer Richards. And in the middle of this barrage from American artillery exploding all around them, Major Charles Whittlesley says, Private Richards, get, get a bird. And meanwhile, the bird's being jostled out of the cage, and a, a round explodes next to the cage, and one of the birds gets away. <laughs> Whittlesley's like, what are you doing? We're down to one bird. And so he writes a note, our artillery is falling directly on us. For God's sake, stop it. Puts a message on the bird's leg. The bird's name is Cherami, dear little friend. Cherami, in the midst of this, this barrage of American artillery, is let loose. She's terrified, just like the soldiers are. She takes off and lands on a nearby tree. She's not going anywhere. The battalion commander, Major Whittlesley, like, get that bird out of here. And so Pri Private Omer Richards, God bless him, he's throwing rocks and sticks and yelling, and the bird's not moving. Finally, the private has to climb up the tree and scare, scare her away, but she hops from branch to branch all the way to the top. <laughs> Finally, and this stuff blowing up around him, too, he's exposed. The bird goes, takes off and goes to the next tree. Repeat the process. Finally, Private Richards shoes off Cherami, she takes off, and an American round explodes underneath her, killing five soldiers. Five Americans are killed and hits her as well. Feathers everywhere. She crashes to the ground. I can't imagine what Major Willsley was thinking at that moment. There's no other way to tell headquarters to stop. But you know what? Cherami is an army bird, huh? <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Maybe the air service. <laughs> and so she comes to after a few minutes, although having, missing an eye, missing a leg and having a hole in her breast, she takes off and makes it back to headquarters and her barrage is stopped. That's fantastic. So she's actually on display in Washington, D.C. at the American Museum. Yeah, she lives another year. She's medically retired, given a citation and a small stipend to live off of. Some people said it was just bird feed and not enough, but you know what, it was okay for her, so. <laughs> anyway. While the Lost Battalion is besieged, the Americans are launching a series of frontal attacks trying to save them. We lost more men trying to save the Lost Battalion than actually was, was actually deployed there forward that, that had broken through because it was mindless frontal attacks. Finally, after the fourth day of the siege, somebody's like, you know what? Maybe we should try a flanking action. It's like, wow, this is ROTC MS-101. Thank you. 
And so the 82nd Division is brought up on the 7th of October, and they begin to probe behind the German lines, and it works brilliantly. The Germans do, do have to fall back when the Americans threaten the flank. But of course, that whole saga is 8 October 1918, Corporal Alvin York. Alvin York, I grabbed the book out there. Anyway, <laughs> that's not a shameless plug. I only make like a buck 50 off them, so it's cool. But it's a good story. It's a story worth telling. Yeah, there, I see you waving it back there. I love you, man. <laughs> Alvin York grew up in uh, Pall Mall, Tennessee. They call it Pall Mall, Tennessee. So it's East Tennessee near the Kentucky border. That's an important part of the story. And Alvin York is in a big family and a hardworking family, poor family. And uh, anyway, 1911 tragedy strikes when his dad is kicked by a mule because his dad is a blacksmith. That was the job he did at night to try to get money in, in addition to farming and hunting. He was kicked by a mule and his chest died from complications. Alvin York's two older brothers are already married, have their own families to take care of. So Alvin York has the, the burden of raising of taking care of the family, running the farm, taking care of his mom, and he can't handle it. So to blow off steam, he goes up a couple miles to the Kentucky border, where, these, where there's these uh, fancy drinking establishments. Well, they're not really fancy. There's these, these cabins built on a Kentucky-Tennessee border, half and half, with the state line painted down the middle, so if the police showed up, you can walk the other side, you can't arrest me, Mr. Police Officer. Anyway, he starts going up there, and he rejects his Christian roots and becomes a good-for-nothing drunk. He's chasing the girls, he's gambling, he's cussing, these are the words he uses, and he's you know, not doing nothing but getting in trouble. And uh, things aren't looking good. And these, bl these blind tigers are called, as you can imagine, they're not the sort of place you go to watch the World Cup on a big screen TV. You're going there to get drunk. To make matters worse, though, if it can be any worse, was uh, all these drunk guys are armed with knives and guns. This is fantastic. So nothing good can come from this. A bunch of drunk, angry guys with weapons. Fantastic. And so almost every month, there's, there's a guy that dies in a gunfight or a knife fight in these blind tigers. Alvin York's uh, mom, Mary York, she's concerned that her son's going to Of course, she's worried that he's turned his back on the Lord. But also, he's just going to get killed one of these weekends. So she sends a pastor to talk to him, Pastor Pyle, but he won't have nothing to do with that. But something happens. You know, this is a neighbor girl, Gracie Williams. And the only way he can see Gracie is to go to church. So anyway, because Gracie's dad, he, he, he does, Francis Asbury Williams, I don't think no father here would want their daughter dating someone like Alvin York at this time in his life. So Alvin York has to go to church to see Gracie, and then he goes to a revival meeting on 1 January 1915. He hears a salvation message, goes up and accepts the Lord, becomes a born-again Christian, and his life completely, radically changes. I mean, it's amazing. He goes from a good-for-nothing drunk to, to teaching kids Sunday school, leading choir. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing the change in his life. And he goes on to become the assistant pastor. They call him the second elder of the church. And it's quite a radical change. What's interesting to me, uh, as, as secular as we'd become 100 years later, Alvin York is still featured, despite the prominence of, of Christian faith in his life, he's still featured in our leadership manuals to this day. Because that's, that's why we have core values in, in all the armed services here. Because we want our, our soldiers to develop these Judeo-Christian traits, even though we won't refer to it as that, but you know, how do you develop these traits? And uh, I've found it's called what I would call building your character muscle. What's the so what of this whole story? It sounds interesting, but I think it has a lot to, to say to us. One of the other uh, leaders featured prominently in Army leadership, of course, is Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And this whole idea of building your moral character muscle, I actually got off of him. He's more eloquent than I am on this whole topic here. But when Alvin York got saved on 1 January 1915, he said it was really hot, because that was a Thursday night. Friday night's drinking night. Guess who came knocking on the door? His drinking buddies. Hey, Alvin, it's time to go to the Blind Tigers and get drunk and blow off some steam. And Alvin York's like grabbing his coat and his hat to go. And he remembered, oh, whoa, last night I went up and accepted the Lord. I can't do this, because I can't go. And they're like, come on, Alvin. I'm, not, I'm a Christian now. I'll wear Christians too. Don't worry about it. He's like, no. I'm he goes, it was really hard to say no. But then the next week, he said no again. And he goes, every time I said no to the temptation, it was easier for me to resist it. And he'll say later on in his own words, all the, te all the temptations I've done went through were to build my character. Aha. So when we see these people like James Rieger or Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, Little Round Top, Gettysburg, or Corporal Alvin York, good for nothing, drunk from nowhere, Tennessee, rise to the occasion in these impossible missions, overwhelming odds, it's merely, I believe, an outward manifestation of the men or women they become by the daily choices they made in their lives. You see where I'm tracking with that? That's why the U.S. Army still features these kind of characters in our leadership manuals. So Alvin York is a conscientious objector. 
He's so sincere about his faith that when he reads in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, I can't kill for no reason at all. Now, he doesn't go back to the original Hebrew or whatever, and you know, it's really murder, but it's as simple as that. And his, his uh, two off, commanding officers happen to be Christians. They, they talk to him. They convince him to stay in the army. But on the morning of the attack on 8 October 1918, he tells the soldiers with him, well, I'm going to die for my country, but I'm not killing for my country. Imagine how popular he was in his unit. Can you imagine that? This guy's going to be a bullet magnet. I don't want him near me. Okay. Alvin York's uh, 82nd Division. They attack into the Argonne. The Germans see him coming. The Germans have a, a fire kill zone set up to draw the Americans in. It's, it's a brilliant trap. The trap is sprung. All hope is lost. Alvin York and 16 other Americans break through the German lines, wind up behind German lines, end up capturing 70 Germans by headquarters. And as the 17 Americans with the 70 Germans are trying to push them into a group, the Germans are dragging their feet because there's a machine gun on the hill above. When a machine gun commander, his name is Lieutenant Paul Lipp, sees the trouble below, he moves his machine gun to a better position and he yells down, Runter, get down. All the Germans hit the deck, jump to the ground. The Americans are standing in the open. Machine gun opens fire, killing six, wounding three, leaving Alvin York and seven privates. What does York do? He's now in command. This conscientious objector who just said he wasn't going to kill any Germans, he's looking around and the first person he sees was next to him, Corporal Murray Savage from upstate New York. And Murray Savage was hit by so many bullets that his body spread across the ground in pieces. Murray Savage was York's only friend in the Army. Another strong Christian in the unit, but not a conscientious objector. And they used to study the Bible together and pray. And anyway, Alvin York's like, I gotta stop the killing. It's not rage, though. Alvin York charges up the hill, outflanks the German machine gun, kills 19 Germans. I say it's not rage because in between shots, he's, he's asking for the Germans to surrender. It's not rage. I stop the killing. Kills all the Germans in a position, runs back down the hill, is chased by a bayonet attack, picks off the bayonet attack, and in the end, kills 25, captures 132, breaks the German hold in the Argonne, a fortress they'd had for four years, and is good for nothing drunk that no, people said would never amount to anything in life. He, he changed the course of history. I wonder if that could be you or me, or maybe somebody we influence. Anyway, give you hope. And then the last action here is Sam Woodfill. That's the pocket for the Lost Battalion. You see, very narrow, surrounded by the Germans. That's Alvin York with, some, with, with the prisoners. And actually, this picture here had been misidentified because a, a photographer from a different unit took this picture. York had to walk these prisoners about 10 miles away. And it was a, a photographer from the 35th Division, York's 82nd. Mislabeled, but then uh, we were able to identify that here, right here in AHEC, great archive to come and see by these German officers. A Lieutenant Paul Lipp, the machine gun commander, that's uh, Max Toma, the 7th Bavarian com commander, and Paul Fulmer, the German who commanded the entire valley, and York behind them. So that's actually what's, what it would have looked like that day on 8 October 1918 at the end of the fight. And then Sam Woodfill. Sam Woodfill was a regular Army soldier. So we had a National Guard soldier with the Lost Battalion, with uh, Major Whittlesley. We had uh, National Army recruit in Sergeant York, and then we got a regular Army soldier right here. So we hit all the branches that existed at the time. Sam Woodfill, uh, he's leading his, his company across a field. They're engaged by German machine gun fire. He advances forward. He picks off the machine gun. He kills a sniper in a church, kills another sniper in a barn, leads his men up a hill, and you can see the rest of that there. He kills a sniper in a tree on the hill above, takes out a German, second German machine gun. He assaults a third German machine gun, his 45 automatic pistol jams. He's got Germans all around him. He takes a German pickaxe from the side of the, of the trench, takes the axe, and then kills all the Germans with their own axe. I mean, the guy's a wild man. Anyway, it's these sort of actions here that, that help us regain the momentum when the Germans are grinding us to a halt. But things don't always go so well. Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur. Does MacArthur ring a bell to anybody out there? He, he was almost a forgotten relic to history here. He uh, was ordered to take uh, Cote de Châtillon, so Hill of Châtillon, and that was part of the German last defensive line, and the Germans wouldn't give an inch. Doug's MacArthur's uh, 42nd boys attacked it twice and were, were thrown back. At the third time, the Corps commander, General Summerall, General Summerall came down and said, Doug, if you don't take that hill, you're done. I'm going to fire you. 
And Doug MacArthur, yeah, so that's what Summer also, give me Chatillon or a list of 5,000 casualties. And Doug MacArthur and typical bravado is like, my name will be at the head of the list of 4,000 casualties. Fantastic, great. And so he gathered, Doug MacArthur orders all the commanders into the room. Okay, boys, we gotta take the hill one more time. And there's this one Captain Ravi Norris, and the, and the captain's like, so what's the plan? Because we're gonna do the same thing we did two times before. And Captain Ravi, no, no, this captain, he's like, I've been on that hill for two days, aren't you gonna ask me my opinion on this? And, and Captain Norris is like, I thought he was gonna fire me on the spot. And like, what, well, well, you have an idea? And they're like, yeah. You guys go ahead and do the hey diddle diddle up the middle, give me 100 guys, I'll swing around back and I'll meet you on top. And it works brilliantly. And so he gets a distinguished service cross and saved Doug, Doug MacArthur's career at that. <clears throat> then finally, let's wrap it up here. After a month of slugging it out, the Americans are ready for a huge breakout. On 1 November, there's a massive barrage. The Americans launch a huge attack, and we break through the German lines, and everything changes at that point. And I'm going to hit some of the highlights there. But if you look at that map, there should be something odd on here. You see this giant finger? Isn't that a bit odd? Keep that in the back of your mind. You see this breakout in the middle of the map here? It's really strange. I'm looking, when I was writing this book, I'm looking at this, this does not look right. What happened there? It's quite a story. <clears throat> well, part of the attack success was tanks and cats. Well, mostly tanks. The tanks helped out quite a bit. But this picture sitting in the archive right here as well. This is probably my favorite picture in the archive from right here at AHEC from uh, their collection for World War I. That's uh, Sergeant Postal with his cat named Mustard. Mustard gas, mustard. <laughs> anyway, a stray kitten they picked up in Varenne. He's part of the attack, and part of the success in the valley was a massive artillery barrage, thousands of tons of poisonous gas, and then armor of tanks pushing through the Germans as well working together with the infantry. We don't have a lot of time here. There's great stories of heroism. We could talk about Rebbe's uh, grandfather. You see Corporal Stewart on there, but that, you'll have to ask her offline. But let's talk about this breakthrough here. So uh, the second infantry division is, is one-third Marine, a brigade of Marines, and the rest of the division are Army. So you have a brigade of Army, and then all the support units are also Army, uh, all the uh, artillery and machine gunners and what have you. So uh, they, these guys get along grandly, too. There's, there's not a lot of jiving that goes back and forth because it's all about survival. If you don't work together, you're dead. But the way it works is friendly competition. So the Army and Marine brigades will rotate being in the front. So about 48 hours, Army in the lead, and then the Marines, or vice versa. In, in this case here, the Marines kick off the attack with the rest of the offensive on 1 November, and it's a good success. By the 3rd of November, the Germans have solidified the line and stopped it, and it, the Army brigade can't break through. And so one of the regimental commanders, his name is Colonel Van Horn. <clears throat> He's commander of the uh, 9th Regiment. He tells his boss, it's, 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 it's pouring rain. The, the, all, the, all the gullies are filled with water. You can only go on the roads, real narrow. It's, it's terrible. Dark nights, cold nights, wet nights. But, uh, Colonel Van Horn is a signal officer. He's not even infantry. He's commanding infantry soldiers. But you know, maybe you need some of those support branch guys out here. Like Rod? Huh? Anyway, Colonel Van Horn goes up to his brigade commander, uh, General Ray, Colonel Ray, and says, hey, boss, I tried to break through. It's not working. I'm, here's my plan. I'm going to take all my native German speakers, put them in front and along the flanks, and we're going to get on the road in two-man deep column and just march through German lines. And the brigade commander is like, you know what? I like that idea. Let me tell the boss. The boss is uh, Marine General Lejeune. Lejeune's like, that's a fantastic idea, but not a regimental tank. I want the entire Army Brigade on the road. I'm going to give you a battalion of Marines and also a, a battery of artillery. And we're going to march about three, 4,000 soldiers and Marines right behind German lines. Well, it's pouring rain. It's, it's a, everyone's miserable out there, especially German defenders. And the march begins. And we're bumping into Germans. And all these native speakers, Americans, are ordering the Germans, hey, we're moving out, get in a formation. So these German soldiers collect their weapons. <laughs> what, what, <laughs> Americans? And they go about eight kilometers behind the German line. It's fantastic. And this is, a you follow this road in the Argonne, we're going to spend October there. Come out there, we'll, get, we'll show you. That's not a straight route. This is windy, nasty road over and down hills. I mean, it's like going to grandma's house on Christmas time. It's fantastic. And that completely breaks the German line. Their hope of holding it, the Meuse Valley ends based off this innovation here by a signal corps officer at that. That's fantastic. 
<laughs> Things are going well. We've finally broken out. And then General Pershing's, like, General Pershing's favorite division is Big Red One, because they've been there since day one, and they're his boys. And uh, General Pershing says, you know what? The most important city in our sector is Sedan. Looks like Sedan, Sedan. And I'd love to have First Infantry Division take that city. Fantastic idea. Be careful thinking out loud, boss. General MacArthur says, this narrowly missed being one of the greatest tragedies of American history. Man, he's right. It was awful. Bad idea. So what happened? Big Red One, instead of attacking straight north, as everyone else is, decides they're going to hook hard left and cut across the entire core, sec first core. So a fifth core unit attacking across the first core, it stops an entire core attack. 200,000 men have to stop because another American unit is pushing through their lines. And there's, there's blue on blue. There's blue on blue. You have forces in darkness showing up on your flank. You think it's a German counterattack. You start shooting at each other. I mean, it's, it's actually catastrophe. And the 42nd Division is commanded by Doug MacArthur. And so he's running around in his car there trying to regain order. He's not, that, that's a goofy story. You know, the story's out there. He was captured by the, no, he wasn't captured. But there was a joke with one of the soldiers. But he stops. And the French are ticked off because then the Americans cross over into their sector. And the French say to the Americans, if you don't get out of our sector in about an hour, we're going to start shooting our artillery at you, so clear out. We're, we're going forward. Don't stop us. And so their recall leading this attack is Lieutenant Colonel Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. You know who his daddy is. And uh, he's called off just before he's entering Sedan, the objective. He can see it, and then the orders come, stop. Don't go any further. He's like, oh, man. But the, the great blessing is, of course, his wife is a volunteer at the YMCA, Eleanor Butler Roosevelt, not the Eleanor you might be thinking about with FDR. She, she's awesome. And so they, they, their, their reunion on the battlefield is caught by a cameraman. It's actually footage. That, 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 that's a still taken off of a camera shot of them together. I think it's really cool. <clears throat> and the French are really awesome about this as well, because they want to take Sedan also. But they saw how eager the Americans were. So they, the French also invited an American unit to march into the city with them. And that's the French and Americans together in Sedan, the thing that caused so much trouble. And then the war ends. Let's go to the last couple of days here. I'm going to hit on the story of Private Gunther, the 79th Division, and 50th Division's story about Colonel Peck, and then we'll wrap it up for questions. Colonel Peck with the 5th Division, you can see he's, uh, his objective was the village of Lupi. This really fits his kind of leadership style. Yes, indeed. You can't make this stuff up. Takes the village in the morning. The war is over in a couple hours. It ends at 11 o'clock. And he's ordering his men to launch another attack at 10.30. And it's uphill against the German 10th Infantry Division. Great division. And a German commander on the hill above is like, what are they doing? The war is almost over. We've got 30 minutes. And so this German officer comes wandering down with this white flag. He goes, I need to talk to your commander. And the American's like, what? OK. So Colonel Peck comes out. I was like, what do you want? And his officer, they had the following exchange. My division is four miles away, but I am ordered to cover that retreat and permit the removal of our material. This I must do and will. I know you will attack in a few minutes. One grand finish, so to speak, and I am pre prepared to meet you on that crest. And then the German officer points out 65 machine guns he has on the hill above. And Colonel Peck has to call off the attack because the soldiers are listening to this conversation. They're like, yeah, I'm not going up that hill. And the sad thing is, is the 5th Infantry Division commander, he got word that the armistice was going into effect at 10 o'clock. So he sent this young Lieutenant Lukert, the young officer on the left, to tell Colonel Peck to stop attacking. And, and Lukert finally found Colonel, Colonel Peck, and he's like, go away, boy, I'm busy. He's like, no, no, the boss says don't attack. He goes, I'm attacking, go away. And so thank God for that German, saved hundreds of lives. That's the kind of tomfoolery going on the last hour of the war. And meanwhile, the 79th Division, mostly boys out of Baltimore in the Maryland area, the, the last soldier to fall dramatically was Private Gunter, the last minute of the war. And I'll read this here. On the right of the line at 1059. What is going on here? Private Henry Gunther, charging headlong upon an enemy weapon, was shot to death. And almost as he fell, the firing died away and appalling silence prevailed. Some eyewitnesses say you could hear his body thudding on the ground. There was silence as he, as he was the last one shot. And that's just not a good deal. The last 11 hours of the war, really this, this includes the last four hours of the war because of darkness, about 11,000 casualties in just the last four hours of the war. There was a lot of fighting 
in the darkness. And uh, you can see how many of those were Americans. It was so bad that the US Congress had hearings after the war. It's like, why did we lose so many guys in the last couple hours of fighting? And it was bad. That's more men in the last 11 hours of the war, really the last four hours of the war, than, than the entire 24-hour period of the D-Day invasion on June 6, 1944. It, it's that bad. Imagine that massive cemetery in Normandy, and that's how many were lost. But anyway, the war was paid for at a high price. We saw uncommon valor from common people. And indeed, it confirms my idea and belief that your life does matter. You leave a legacy behind. And what you do in life echoes across the generations and into eternity. Thank you for your time. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we do have about 10 minutes uh, for Q&A. Uh, uh, I will ask, we've got a big crowd tonight, so if you've got a question, please limit yourself to one question at a time. If we end up with enough time, we'll come back to you for a second question. So who would like to get us started? Right here in the middle. How would you evaluate the relative uh, merits of surprise, audacity, and overwhelming force. Yeah, so those are the keystones of how General Pershing said he was going to overcome the German defenses. And uh, surprise, of the three, surprise was the most important, clearly. That gave us the, the edge. But audacity wasn't enough. And, and really, the, the whole idea of audacity, the, the French had a saying, l'audace, l'audace, toujours l'audace, in 1914. You know, audacity, audacity, always audacity. That, that's actually quoted by Patton in the Patton movie, in fact, by George C. Scott. And uh, Okay, 1914, Lieutenant Charles de Gaulle is leading a French attack across a Dinant Bridge into Belgium. So across a Dinant Bridge, very, very strategic point, also in World War II, 1940. And out, the French are out there with drums and beautiful blue and red uniforms and flags, very Napoleonic, and they surge forward and German machine guns uh, open fire. One of the bullets hits uh, Charles de Gaulle in the leg and throws him to the ground. He's watching the French army melt around him. And he, and he writes in his memoirs, there was no amount of audacity that would help us overcome that wall of German bullets. So, audacity with common sense and maneuver, maybe. Thank you. We have one over there. <clears throat> Thank you. My great uncle was one of those 20% foreigners. His grandmother, my grandmother, his sister brought him over to Philadelphia from Ireland, but he did speak English. And when he went in to enlist, they said, you don't have to enlist, you're a foreigner. And they told him, no, I'm going to fight for this country if I'm going to live in it. So he went to the 79th in Camp uh, Meade, Fort Meade. And as you know, they sent the whole 79th over in Toto. They were almost untrained. And he was there on September 26th, 1918. The objective was to take Monfu Khan. Cameron was the general, and he was killed on that day. Uh, my question to you is the other general who had the 4th Division was a guy named Bullard, and he proceeded to the right, and he was supposed to hook around behind Mount Foucault, supposedly, take the heat off the 79th. He did not. He proceeded forward, and Cameron's guys were massacred, and Bullard went out to get a, an army later on. He was a hero. Any comments on that? I do. So there's scholarship out there by, by one uh, journalist in particular, and uh, we will probably disagree on this, but I, I don't believe there's any conspiracy. And uh, I, I read his comments on that, Walker, and uh, there was no conspiracy. So the problem we had is 4th Infantry Division broke through, and they were in a position to swing behind Malfalcon to help the 79th Division, 79th Division to, to carry through. The problem was there was, like, there was a core boundary there between 5th and 3rd Corps. And that's a big issue there. They weren't, the, the, the 4th and the 79th, they did not even have liaison. They broke, lost contact. So the commander, Bullard, was concerned. I know there's orders that went back and forth. I'm tracking all that. But the concern was that there was a lack of sufficient liaison and coordination to affect that maneuver without risking other American lives. It was, it was, was it a loss of a great opportunity? It sure was. Did it cost him a lot more lives being lost? Absolutely. But I don't think it was a conspiracy for Bullard, because there's an allegation by Walker that Bullard was competing with the other commander for, for another star promotion, and I just don't buy it. I know there was animus between them, but I read through the reports, and it doesn't seem like a conspiracy. I just think it's the reality of warfare. It's just too hard to maneuver across. You know, even today, you know, so when my unit deployed a Desert Storm, the, there was a... We cross the border on 23 February and begin our advance on the 24th. 
And that's when everyone else pushes off. And in our sector, a 24th Division uh, Bradley showed up. We didn't know it was a Bradley. At, at first, we thought it was an Iraqi BMP. And so we're about to engage that. But thankfully, our, our, our regimental commander, Colonel Holder, he waited until we had positive identification. And it was somebody from the other core sector, 18th Airborne Corps, had crossed over. And uh, thank God he had the calmness to say, no, let's wait. It's not a big deal. And uh, even in our sophisticated time of communications and we, we had real time and all that, still those mistakes are even problematic today. Imagine in 1918 in a green army. Anyway, that's my thought. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.